You might remember that we find ourselves here in the midst of a parable, a parable in the singular, according to uh, Dr. Luke, anyway, uh, which might strike us as three parables, uh, the parable of the lost sheep and of the lost coin and of the lost son. We'll not uh, quibble over whether to call them one parable or three. Uh, You can take that up with uh, Dr. Luke when you see him. Uh, The fact is, we have already made something of a distinction by breaking up these into uh, two parts, at least, two of the um, parables at the beginning of the month, and now this last one today, on the last day of, uh, last Lord's Day of this month. And uh, that fact reminds me to remind you a little bit about the context of this passage uh, that we're about to read. Remember that as Jesus' life came near its end, uh, the intensity of the tension between Jesus and the Pharisees grew more and more, exponentially, it seemed. Not to put too fine a point on it, the Pharisees hated his guts. And that was not a feeling that Jesus reciprocated uh, to them. He loved them. He reached out to them. Even this very day with this very parable, uh, he was working very hard to reach out to them as they were working very hard to expedite his death. Of course, they would not be loved by him. They wouldn't have it. And every attempt on Jesus' part to do so only caused their infuriation with him to boil all the hotter. They were even less able truly to receive love than they were to give it. But what drove them to the brink of madness was to see others loved by Jesus especially people whom they considered to be unworthy of anyone's love, people they called tax collectors and sinners. Jesus, on the other hand, and to the consternation of the Pharisees, not only received such sinners, but ate with them. Now with great crowds standing around Jesus, a great crowd which included both those uh, said sinners And grumbling Pharisees, Jesus tells about the rejoicing spirit with which God receives sinners. This is good news. My brothers and sisters, good news for us. So let's open our ears and our hearts to receive his word and through it that love again. Let's pray. Father, open our hearts, we pray, because we are so resistant to your love. We've got this wall, Father, built up in ourselves, created by the fall, by our sin, by our rebellion against you. We resist the idea that you love us in such lavish ways that um, we could speak not only of the prodigal son, but to even speak this morning of the prodigal God. The God who is loose and lavishes his grace so in such a prodigal way upon us children who deserve nothing, indeed deserve just the opposite. 
So, Father, break down that wall of resistance, we pray, and speak love and grace to our hearts again, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 15, beginning at verse 11. And he said, there's Jesus, of course. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come home. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. 
it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This parable has been called one of the most famous stories ever told and and the greatest story in the world. I'm not disagreeing with those assessments. But I find it just a little bit ironic because it's a story without an ending. Jesus leaves us hanging. Well, we are wont to ask, so what happened next? Did the older brother come and join the party or not? And what ultimately happened to these two sons? Did the family live all together and happily ever after? Jesus doesn't finish the story. Doesn't he know how? Well, certainly, Jesus knows how to finish a story, but he doesn't end this one, I think, so that we'll be drawn into it ourselves. Beautifully, Jesus does not tell us what became of these two brothers, so that we will look closely at them reflected and see them reflected in ourselves in our own lives, and learn the lessons that are here for us and write them, as it were, uh, that is, write those endings for ourselves. So let's do that. Let's look at these two sons. First, consider the younger son, the, the prodigal, as we've come to call him. He's one of two sons, and Jesus makes it clear from the very beginning that he has both sons in view. By starting with that line, there was a man who had two sons. But first, the younger goes up to his father and demands, give me the share of property that is coming to me. In the ancient Near East, it was not uncommon for a father to divide the property between his sons. Even before his death, he would continue the father would to enjoy the proceeds and profits from that capital uh, that he entrusted to his sons, probably in the form of land. Uh, Two-thirds would go to the oldest, a third to a younger brother. In this case, however, it's not so much a gift, but acquiescence to the foolish and selfish and unfeeling and really rebellious, obnoxiously rebellious demand that the younger son uh, made of his father that he give him his share early. And make no mistake, his request was all of those things and more. Essentially, the younger son was saying to his father, I wish you were dead. And um, the fact that you're not making your way to the grave as quickly as I would like Uh, means that now I'm just going to have to demand it flat out. Give me what's coming to me now. It's not too much to say that the younger son hated his father. And this demand was the demonstration of that hatred. It was simply the outcome of it. Nor is it too much to imagine that he had long despised his father, this request likely rising from a disdain that had filled his heart for some time. Rudyard Kipling poetically summarizes the son's attitude in verse. My father glooms and advises me. My brother sulks and despises me. My mother catechizes me. 
till I want to go out and swear. Well, this son wanted to do more than swear. He wanted to spend. He wanted to spend it all. In fact, he wanted to do whatever he wanted to do with whomever he wanted to do it without having to submit to his father. But to do that, he had to have money. And to have money, he had to have his share of the property and liquidate it, sell it, turn it into cash. And that's exactly what he did. Don't you wonder how much this family lost the day this son took his share, this foolish cad, and transformed one-third of the family's assets into cash, selling probably to the very first and low bidder in all likelihood, judging from the fact that he pulled off the sale in just a few days. How thoroughly lost this son truly was. As Kipling's poem points out, he was already lost before he even left home. He was lost in selfishness, in ingratitude, in rebellion, and greed. He was lost because he hated his own father, whose heart he broke by his loathsome demand. He sealed his lostness by getting as far away from his father as he possibly could, and once there, recklessly squandering every last dollar, every single denarius, throwing it left and right until he had absolutely nothing left. Nothing. Could things go downhill from there? Oh, yes, they could, and they did. They went from bad to worse as famine arrived, not only where he lived, but in the whole country. Not, now not only is he hopeless, he's helpless, with no one able or willing to lend him any aid to alleviate his hunger. He hires himself out to someone in that far country as a tender of swine, a job that carried its own curse, according to Jewish custom. And if that weren't bad enough, he actually finds himself coveting the pigs, their slop. I mentioned a moment ago that we're going to look for ourselves in this parable. Have you found yourself yet? Have we gone far enough in the story yet for you to see yourself? Can you not see, my brothers and sisters, how we are lost and may be lost? Here was a young man who wanted what his father could give him, but didn't want his father. Is that not what it means to be lost? How well do you love your father? And I mean now your capital F, Father, your Father in heaven. How much do you desire? Desire to enjoy him. Desire his company. Desire his fellowship, a happy relationship with him, your maker. And your sustainer. Do you love God? Or do you love what God gives you? Is it the gifts? Or is it the givers that you really cherish?
Listen to your own prayers sometime. What do they sound like? To put it in everyday terms, do they sound more like love notes or grocery lists? Demands for stuff or desires to love God better and deeper, more passionately, to be more like him, to walk more closely with him, your heavenly father. What of the use to which you put his good gifts? Do you, do you squander them or do you use what God has given you for the sake of his glory and for the advancement of his kingdom? Dear flock, as much as I hate to admit it, and we confess it every Lord's Day anyway, there are ways in which we prove ourselves rebels every day, every hour of the day, every week. Ways that we not only fail to love God, but actually hate him. Refusing his fatherly discipline, throwing off his righteous rule over us, demanding to live on our own terms and by our own rules, presuming on his affection, expecting his love and blessing while hardly turning an eye to heaven. Even while we are at home with God, our rebel hearts want to run away and sin some more. That's the fallen condition of our sinful hearts. You don't need to look any further in this story to find yourselves. We are the prodigals. But then look second at the oldest son. You know how the story goes. The prodigal son, once he's hit rock bottom, comes to his senses, returns to his father, and I take it in, as in a genuine Humility. I think that's the way to understand this passage. Genuine humility with a truly contrite heart. He confesses to his father. But before the prodigal makes it all the way home to the house, the father sees him, runs to him, throws his arms around his son. And before the son has a chance to finish His sentence, the father is calling for a lavish celebration. We'll get back to all that in just a couple of minutes. But in the meantime, the older son, who's been out in the field, sweating, working hard, laboring, comes home from a hard day. And imagine what he must be thinking when coming closer to the house, the sound grows louder and louder of singing and the rhythmic sound of feet beating and in dance, a party to which he's not yet been invited and knows nothing about. He calls a servant. He asks what gives, and the servant says, your brother has come home. Those words grated on him. They galled him. Your brother? Oh, no. No, I don't have any brother. Can't you hear him muttering under his breath? The servant continues, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. What? The fattened calf? That does it. I'm not even going in there. His father, who 
knows somehow that the elder son has returned from the field but has refused to join the party, goes out to him. Don't fail to miss that. Goes out to him and entreats him. But the son will have nothing to do with it. Instead, he says, look. These many years I have served you, I've never disobeyed any of your commands. Yet you never gave me, even a young goat, even a kid, to celebrate with my friends. But when this, this son of yours comes home, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill a fattened calf for him. Where to begin? Hardly any two sentences in the history of language have been filled with as much venom as these. He starts with insolence. Look, he says, to his own father. Look, all these years I've slaved for you. Now, I know your Bible says served there in the English translation. But the verb also means slaved. And I think it's much more likely what he was thinking and what he was saying. I have slaved for you. The impudence of this son. Working and slaving, I never disobeyed your command. When I started studying this passage, I assumed that we could believe him. Can you? Never disobeyed a single command? Even if he did obey every single command of his father outwardly, his words in his tone here tell us clearly that he never obeyed his father from his heart. And outward obedience with the inward rebellion is not obedience. Motive is everything in the Bible. The vitriol continues. Yet you never gave me a young goat. The idea being that you slay the fattened calf that we've been nurturing specially and preparing and raising for some special occasion. And you slay it for him? And you don't even give me? You never have even, even a, a goat, a little goat. He can't even bring himself to acknowledge the fraternal relationship to his brother, but irreverently says to his father, this son of yours. Not my brother, but this son of yours. And he gets even nastier. He says, this son of yours who devoured your property with prostitutes. Who said anything about prostitutes? Have you heard anything about prostitutes to this point? This is the first time prostitution enters the conversation, and it's on the lips of the older son who really knows nothing directly about the prodigal's activities in a distant land. It sounds, frankly, like that's exactly what the elder son would have done with the money had he had it in hand, hired prostitutes. But uh, at any rate, the Pharisees standing in the crowd that day, they don't have to look very far to find themselves in this parable. They know full well that Jesus is laying his finger right on their pompous, self-righteous, and yet filthy hearts. 
They who claim to have been the most obedient, the most holy, the most upright people in the land who always obeyed God's commands, they are the elder brother. Everyone that there that day could easily have seen the, in that fictional older brother the Pharisees tithing mint and cumin and dill while neglecting justice and the love of God, cleansing the outside of the cup and dish while the inside is full of greed and wickedness. But of course, our concern here this morning is not with Pharisees from 2,000 years ago. It's with ourselves. I know that the time is fleeting this morning, so I'll cut right to the chase. It is with the Pharisee who dwells in you. You confess it now, and I will with you. We think way too highly of ourselves most of the time. We can spot the sins of another person from a mile away. But we have very little sight for our own sin. A couple of days ago, a friend of mine from the staff of Covenant Seminary, whom I met at GA, General Assembly lamented to me how she finds it so much easier to get angry, really angry about the sins of others than it does to get so angry about her own sins. I would have only been adding to my own sins that I disagreed with her. So easily we forget two things. First, we forget that we, what we were at one time and continue in many ways to be the prodigal son. And second, that it is not just prodigal sons, but elder brothers too who need forgiveness. B.B. Warfield once put it this way, The Father in heaven has no righteous children on earth. His grace is needed for all And most of all, for those who dream, they have no need of it. Dare not to dream, my brothers and sisters, that you are not just as much in need of God's grace as the worst sinner you've ever seen. You and I are in no position to think ourselves any less sinful, one ounce less needy and less desperately in need of God's grace than the tattooed and pierced prostitute, than the blood-stained drug lord, than Jerry Sandusky, Let there be no self-righteousness to be found in any of us, dear flock. Sin is the great leveler of us all. So here's the good news. No, the great news. No, the fabulous, wonderful, 
almost unbelievable, great news. The grace of the Father is sufficient, more than sufficient, for them both, for both sons, and is extended to both. Look, to the prodigal son, coming still on the horizon, just having barely turned, as it were, in repentance, to him the Father runs. Don't fail to be struck by that. Imagine the picture. An old man in that culture, girding up his loins like a child, running to his son. It was a picture that bordered on the absolute ridiculous. The father runs to greet his wayward but returning son. Actually, it's, that's just but one of the many actions a father takes. Even before he ran to him, did you notice this? Before he ran, he felt compassion for him. He feels for his son. Verse 20, and then he ran to him. Then he embraced him. Then he kissed him, and he kissed him over and over and over again. That's the sense of the Greek here. He kissed him fervently. He kissed him eagerly. He kissed him tenderly. He kissed him repeatedly. Before his son could finish the speech that he had rehearsed probably a thousand times on his walk from a distant land, To home, the father is ordering the best robe, the ring, the shoes for his feet. We could take time and unpack all of those things this morning. We won't, but they all carry their own significance in the culture of that time of authority and of of freedom and of home. Slaves went barefoot. Sons wore shoes. Just as we saw last time with the lost sheep returned and the lost coin found, celebration marks the repentance of a sinner brought back home. That's grace. That's grace, my friends. Your Father in heaven loves to receive you. He rejoices to receive you again and again and again. And to put that robe on you again. But how wonderful is this? He also has grace for the older brother too. To those self-righteous in the church. Whether in the days leading up to the cross. During Jesus' life. Or during our own very day and place. Right here. In this room. He has grace. Even for you. Even for you. Do you notice that the father not only went out for the prodigal son, he also went out of his way for the self-righteous one. Did you spot that? He came to the elder son too. Instead of returning snub for snub, when the oldest son refuses to enter the party over the prodigal, the father leaves the party, goes out to that self-righteous prig out in the yard. And then, to all the petulant and peevish protestations of the self-righteous son, the father responds in all gentleness. Son, you are always with me. And everything that I have is yours. I rather suspect My brothers and sisters, that we need to hear them both. 
both of these today. I don't know whether you need to be reminded of the love of God that rejoices over you, celebrating and saying that that you were dead and you're now alive, you were lost and you're now found, that you've returned to your Father again, or the gentle rebuke that reminds you, don't forget, you're always with me and everything that I have is yours. Don't ever forget that. I don't know which one you need to hear more today, but I rather suspect you need to hear both. I started this morning by pointing to you that Jesus, pointing out to you that Jesus' story doesn't have an ending. Beautifully, Jesus does not tell us what became of these two sons. Instead, he leaves that to you. You must write the ending of the story for yourself. If you're the prodigal today, you've turned away from the Lord, then you will do well to come back and to say from your hearts, Father, I have sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And then feel his arms flinging around you, his kisses on your face, and his robe once again wrapped around you. And if you are the elder brother, then rejoice in the fact that everything, that you are his, and that everything that is his is yours. And then don't fail to join the party for every single prodigal who comes back into that possession as well. Amen.